All right, let's open up our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 3. So we are in 2 Samuel chapter 3. If you are visiting today, we are going through the book of 2 Samuel. We were in 1 Samuel till the end of the spring, beginning of summer, and then we transitioned to James for the summer. Do we still have the 2 Samuel journal Bibles over there? We do not. If you would like a journal Bible, what's a journal Bible, Joe? A journal Bible is it's 2 Samuel alone with pages, empty pages beside it that you can actually put notes and things like that. So if you would like one, come see me or Pastor Andy. We can get you one, but right now we are all out of them. So we are at 2 Samuel chapter 3, and we're going to actually read the passage as we go. Uh, when I say obstacle course, do you have an idea of what I'm talking about? Raise your hand if you do. So most of you have encountered some form of obstacle course. Maybe if you were in the military, you actually had to do one. If you were in the police force or, or something like that, you had to actually go through an obstacle course so you show that you are qualified to do whatever. Others, we got some obstacle course people here who do it for recreation. There's races such as the, Sp- the Spartan race. Can somebody turn the light on up here, please? I knew, I was like, man, my left eye is a little bit darker than my right eye. Uh, the Spartan race, Tough Mudder, those are some races that include running mixed with obstacle course. Tough Mudder includes mud. So you're crawling and you're climbing and all of those kind of things. And even now, let there be light, right? And there was. Ninja warrior stuff, even young kids. So like a lot of the gymnastic places have little ninja warrior courses. You can actually uh, get the accessories and have one in your backyard at home. And in all of these obstacle courses, you see climbing and crawling and jumping. It's really testing your strength, your stamina, your balance and agility. And what we see is the harder the obstacle the more contestants are unable to overcome and continue on to the finish line. It's just too much to overcome these proverbial hurdles. And what we see in chapter 3 of 2 Samuel is it is filled with obstacle after obstacle after obstacle as we try to see David sit on the throne. There is constant resistance to God's will prevailing. Yet, and this is crucial, and I want everybody to hear this, I want it to understand and really wrap your heart and mind around this reality, God's plan still is coming to fruition. It always has, it always will, no matter what obstacles try to get in the way of that happening. So as we look at the obstacles of life and God's overcoming Uh, We're going to look at two major obstacles in our passage today. We're going to begin with obstacle number one, the deliberate conflict. Saul is gone and opposition continues on. So even though Saul is out of the picture, resistance has not changed at all. So we're going to see this conflict that continues to arise with David. And then second obstacle are difficult characters. We're going to see three people in this story, and they're all problematic as God is continuing to carry out his will. So let's look at obstacle number one. Read verse one with me, and we see the deliberate conflict. It says, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. First of all, we're asking the question, where is the end to this conflict? 
It says right there, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. So Saul is gone. You would think circumstances would improve finally for David. And yet there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. One of the things that frustrates me uh, working at, and having the location here is I get the train often right here. Has anybody caught the train even on Sunday morning? There's been a couple times I know because all of a sudden I look out, I don't see anybody, and then I can hear the train, and then magically about five minutes later, 70 people come pulling in. But I've sat at that train before, and there are times where I'm like, is this ever going to end? Like, I'm looking and I can't see. I've gotten books out before and read. I've sat there literally at least 10 minutes before for a train. Well, it feels that way in our story. I mean, we went through 1 Samuel, right? So over 10 years, David has been on the run from Saul. 10 years, a decade. And you would assume the dynamics would change drastically. Saul is dead. He's gone. Finally, things will change. What we saw last week with Pastor Andy Things didn't change. Remember 2 Samuel 2, 7 to 9. The house of Judah anointed me king over them, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him to Mahinam, and he made him king. So now we have what? How many kings do we have? We have two kings. That's a problem, right? Where it should only be one king, now we have two kings. Abner admits, even as the course of the chapter we're going to see, that he knew the Lord had sworn to David that David was to be king, and yet Abner does what? He puts Saul's son on the throne, and for two years, two years this goes on, with him sitting on the throne instead of David. It's a divided nation. And I think we're left asking that question, why are people so resistant to the will of God? Why are people so opposed to what God intends, what God purposes? Because not only where's the end, what do we expect then? And I think that's what we need to see. We should expect what we see here, the long wars, the tension, the conflict. That is par for the course as Christians. And we live in Ohio, and a good portion of us complain about the weather, do we not? I mean, because it can be sunny and warm, and the next day it can be cold and snowing. It seems like that drastic. Even a few days or a few weeks ago, it like all of a sudden out of nowhere it was 90. Like, what just happened? Like, it's in September. Like, where, what are we doing? We, we're used to these really adverse, extreme weather conditions. And I think a lot of us, fail to appreciate as believers that conflict, tension, opposition, adversity, trials, that is the norm for the Christian. Genesis 3.15, remember, we looked at this so many times over the years. I will put enmity, that's hostility to the point of bloodshed, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his head. That is the, his heel. That is the gospel. That's the promise of Jesus, but it's also the promise of this ongoing spiritual war that will never end until Christ returns and the end has come. 
And what we see in 2 Samuel is just a further acknowledgement of that. This tension between Saul and David, that is the gospel. There's always going to be resistance. The enemy is always going to oppose what God's will is. Listen to what Paul warns. He says in Ephesians 6, 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Friends, we have a real enemy at work in our lives, in our nation, in our world. So we need to open up our eyes. We need to acknowledge. We need to realize that life is not going to be easy. Peace and rest, times of revival and awakening, I would argue those are the exceptions, not the norm. And I think for too many of us as believers, we have this anticipation that we think because we follow Jesus, life is going to be smooth sailing. And the truth is, following Jesus might actually make your life a lot more difficult because there is an enemy who is going to resist and oppose. Jesus warned, what did he say? They hated me, they are going to hate you. And we see this with David, where it would would naturally make sense Saul's dead. Here you go, King David. And they're like, no, not that easy. Not yet. Should we be surprised by opposition and conflict? The answer is no. So whatever is going on in your life right now, what's going on in our nation, what's going on in your neighborhood, your schools, whatever it is, be prepared. Expect this. And I'm not talking about it in a very pessimistic way. Because we're the one, and we're going to see in this chapter, we know the one that has overcome the world. But you need to be ready for the resistance. You need to be ready for the pushback. You need to be ready for the schemes of the evil one. So we see the deliberate conflict. There's no end in sight. We expect the same. But what we're going to see, the next obstacle, and I would argue probably in this chapter, the biggest obstacle, and it is people. People are the problem. And we're going to see three particular characters that are big problems, messy sinners in our passage today. Album character number one, Abner. We're going to look at Abner. Let's read. We're going to, we're going to skip verses two to four. We're going to come back to them later. So pick up at verse five with me as we see Abner the arrogant. Actually, verse six. We'll pick up at verse six. While there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Ritzpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul your father to his brothers and to his friends, and I have not given you into the hand of David, and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman? God do so to Abner and more also if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord had sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So we need to see Abner. We need to kind of expose Abner in this chapter. First of all, we see that Abner is arrogant. Abner, we need to understand, Abner is a puppeteer. Have you ever seen a puppeteer? 
The puppeteer is the person who is controlling the puppet. So it looks like the puppet is moving, but it's really the puppeteer. Or if you've seen like a ventriloquist, it's the person whose hand's in, he's moving the head, he's talking, but it's really not alive. No, the person that's making all the movement is the puppeteer. Abner is the puppeteer. Who is his puppet? Ishbosheth. That's what's been the case all the time. Who put him on the throne? It was Abner. Abner did it. He's the real power. And notice even the, the weird tension. The house of Saul is getting weaker. Abner, in the house of Saul, what's happening with him, though? He's getting stronger. That makes no sense. They're getting weaker, but somehow, some way, he is gaining momentum. He is getting stronger in the house. Now, he gets accused of visiting Saul's concubine, Ritzbah. What's the big deal about that? Because what that would have appeared to, to anybody is to, to visit the concubine of the king. It was a, an attempt. It was aggressive, a very bold move that you were showing dominance and authority. It would have been something, we're going to see Absalom do something similar with his dad later on with, with David and David's concubines. So it, it's, a, it's a power move that, hey, I'm kind of laying claim to the throne. So we even see with Abner, he might be thinking that he is going to take over and be king. Like, I'm done being the puppet master. I'm going to be the king. So we see this going on. So instantly, Ishbosheth does what? Gets a little insecure. He's like, hey, why did you go visit my dad's concubine? Here's the deal, though. We don't know if he did or didn't because what does, what does Abner not do? He doesn't acknowledge it one way or the other. He doesn't say, hey, I did what I did, or I never did that. He just goes on. What he does, and here's where we start seeing that arrogance, we start seeing that pride with him as he goes down and he says, he he, he talks about his kind of his track record. To this day, I keep showing uh, steadfast love. Does anybody remember what the Hebrew was for that? It starts with an H. Hesed covenant faithfulness I've, I've, to the house of Saul your father to his brothers to his friends and I have not given you into the hand of David and yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman so he's just, he's prideful he's he's angry like how dare you question me we don't know if he did it or he didn't do it either way he says how dare you question me and then notice the arrogance what he goes on and says God so do so to Abner so he's third person guy and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn, I will do it. I will transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. This is very much King Nebuchadnezzar-like language. Do you remember Deuteronomy, not Deuteronomy, Daniel 4.30? This is the great Babylon which I built with my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. That we see with Abner, he's this arrogant. He's like, I will make this happen. How dare you question me? Well, you see the danger of power. You see the pride that often comes before the fall. Because not only is he arrogant, he is ambitious. Go on verse 12 with me. He's a mover and a shaker. So Abner sends messengers to David on his behalf 
saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but the one thing I require of you is that you shall not see my face unless you bring, first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, Give me my wife, Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from the husband, Patil, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Barum. Then Abner said to him, Go return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past, You have been seeking David as king over you. Now then, bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and all the house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with 20 men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the rest of the men were there with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and I will gather all Israel to my Lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you, that you may reign over them, over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. Do you see what Abner is trying to do? He's switching allegiance. We have things even in, in, in law, like work, if you work for a company, especially like in sales, you have to sign a, if you're leaving the company, a non-compete clause. And that is for a certain length of time, I am not allowed to go to my current customers that I'm leaving and say, hey, why don't you come with me over to this new company? College sports, they've even like prevented it, but it's becoming more and more open to be able to transfer. So like, imagine the rivalry of Ohio State and Michigan if one of their star players upped and left and then transferred over to the other team. They would be called the Benedict Arnold and a traitor, right? And we see that. It's like, okay, so he's been pro-Saul. Abner was there, guess what? With Saul chasing David. And now he's going to switch teams. He helped support David getting Michael back. We're going to talk a little bit later about that. But that was David's first wife from Saul's family, Saul's daughter. Uh, we see sales pitch to the elders. He's, he's used, isn't the irony he's using God's promises? 1 Samuel 24, 20, Behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the king of Israel shall be established in your hand. So Abner would have been around hearing all that over the course of the time with Saul. And he's saying, hey, this is inevitable. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose. And what he ends up being, once again, he's that puppet master. He's the manipulator in all this. He's the mover and shaker. And he's doing it all for who? Why is Abner doing this? Who is he looking out for? Abner is looking out for Abner. It's all about self-preservation. Well, how about you? How often do you manipulate? How often do you work for your own preservation? How ambitious are you? And I'm not talking about ambition being bad, but when it's, it's done in a way where you're only looking out at the man or woman in the mirror, 
you're missing the point. So that's character number one, Abner. He's a, he's a mess. So maybe the next guy will be better, right? Character number two, Joab. Pick up at verse 22. First of all, he has an agenda, similar agenda. Read verse 22 with me. It says, Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. And Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to me, came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know your coming and going and to know all that you are doing. So Joab, let's, let's remember who Joab is. Joab is David's right-hand man. He's also his nephew, so he's family. He's been in an ongoing battle with the house of Saul. He doesn't trust Abner. Abner is Saul's right-hand man. So instantly, what does he see? He sees a, a rival in Abner. And now that Abner is becoming buddy buddies or with David, Joab's like, whoa. I mean, we've, you might have seen this happen before even in your work environment where somebody starts gunning for your job. And what do you start doing? Instant insecurity. There was a pop commercial last night. And in the commercial, this famous football player came in and he's sitting with the mom and dad of a family. And they're like, what is he doing here? And he's like, he's our new son or something like that. And the oldest son's like, and he's up in his room and he's like, it's not fair. He's like, he's he's my rival now. He's my competitor. And what we see here, and that's the agenda issue going on with Joab. He sees somebody potentially gunning for his job, taking his position. For Samuel 14, 50, it says, the name of, of, of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle, Saul's cousin. So we know Abner, that's, he's the right-hand man of Saul, and he's gunning for David's right-hand man. It's all about, once again, self-preservation. How jealous do you get of other people? How insecure are you naturally? How, how worried are you of losing what you have? Man, we, doesn't this expose the human heart? Because everybody in this story is a little bit of a mess. And the truth be told, all of us could easily fit into all these characters. Each of us could easily slide in and we could fill your name in. So not only does he have an agenda, pick up verse 26 with me. He is an avenger, not like the Marvels, but he is an avenger. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. But when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Ashel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner." May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house, and may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge, who is leprous, who holds a spindle, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. 
So Joab and Abishah, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Ashahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. So not only does Joab not trust Abner, he also hates Abner. He hates him. Remember the story last week. Pastor Andy preached it. 2 Samuel 2.23. They're in this fight, and the, the brother, the brother of Joab, is chasing after Abner. And apparently he's pretty agile, like a gazelle. And he's just, whatever way he goes, the brother goes. And he keeps following him. And Abner keeps saying, I, I don't want to do this. Just let me be, and I won't, I won't kill you. And he refuses to back down. He keeps chasing him. So finally, once again, because Abner's big on self-preservation, he ends up killing the brother. 2 Samuel 2.23, he, Asahel, refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out of his back, and he fell there and died where he was. That's Joab's brother. And even when he's talking to Joab's brother, one of the things he says is his Turn aside from me, following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? So he knew Abner had, a, had an inkling that there was going to be a reckoning if he hurt his brother. And that's surely what happened. So Joab ends up uh, filled with anger because he killed his brother. So then what does he do? He sends messengers to go get Abner. Now, Abner had left with what? He had been granted what? Peace. So he comes back. I guarantee Joab did not send the message from Joab. I mean, Abner's not a fool. He sends a message, and he would have sent a message impersonating who? David. There was, I remember in the South a few years back, there was a, somewhere in, I think, Alabama, there was a person that somehow had a police car. He was a bad person, and he was impersonating cops and trying to, to, to assault women and, like, pull them over. And if you're a woman or even a man and you get pulled over by a police officer, at the very least, you're feeling comfortable that this is somebody that I should be safe with. And it's kind of like that. He goes he thinks he's under peace. He gets there, and I do wonder when he saw Joab how much, like, uh-oh, this isn't good. And he takes him at the gate, and then what does Joab do? He kills him. But where does he kill him? Because I think there's even a purpose behind how he killed him. Where did he kill him? In the stomach. How did his brother kill, was his brother killed? Stomach. This is vengeance. Remember that. This is revenge. Leviticus 19.18, though, which he would have had access to, the word of God at the time. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord your God. So here he is. He's self-preserving. He has an agenda. He doesn't trust Abner, and he is vengeful. It's revenge. He's controlled by anger and hatred. These characters are a mess. They're flawed Civil war is taking place. Well, do you forgive? Are you a grudge holder? Hey, right now, right now, today, is there somebody that you currently have tension with, that you're angry at, that you don't like? I mean, that's the human heart. 
apart from the saving work of Christ and the redeeming work of the Holy Spirit. We, we, we hold grudges, we resent, and the more you allow that to, to snowball, the more you allow it to simmer, next thing you know, you're plotting a scheme to kill a guy. Are you avenging like that? All right, so we've looked at two really, I mean, at the end of the day, pretty bad characters. We've seen Abner. He's arrogant. He, he's got his ambition. We've got Joab, who has his own agenda, and he is an avenger. Is there anybody great in the story? You know who probably is going to be a really great example in the story? Let's think about it. David, right? A man after God's own heart. At least we're going to have one character who's really great in the story. Let's look at David. Let's look at David. Let's start down at verse 1 again. We're in the second half of David, of verse 1 through 5. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His first was Amnon of Ahinam of Jezreel, and his second, Chaliab of Abigail, the wife of Nabal of, Car- of Carmel, and the third, Absalom, the son of Makah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth, Adoniah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth, Shephtiah the son of Abital, and the sixth, Ethrim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. He's getting stronger, but he doesn't seem to be getting better. Is it possible to get strong and it actually be a weakness? Have you ever known somebody that had great success in a business? in work, in the workplace, but somehow they kind of lost their way as they thrived. Maybe their, their, their marriage fell apart. So they're getting stronger, but they're not getting stronger. You can actually get too strong, for example, in sports performance. This happens sometimes. You'll get these college football players, and in the offseason, they'll gain so much muscle But now when they come back to play the position that they once played, they're not able to do it with the same level of agility and ability because they've gotten too strong. And what we see going on with David, he is getting strong in the world's eyes. What's happening with his family? It's it's expanding. It's growing. Chapter 2. How many wives did David have in chapter 2? Bible students. Two wives. By the end of this chapter, how many wives does he have? He has one for each day, right? Of the week. He's got seven wives. Lots of kids. One of the marriages is very intentional. It's to the daughter of a neighboring king. So it's a, it's a political move. Even wanting Saul's daughter back is a political move. Because he's trying to transition the throne from Saul to David. What would be a really good way to do that? having a child between David's house and Saul's house. He needs Michael back for that. Now, it is true, you remember in 1 Samuel, he loved her. We're going to see love is lost when we see them a little bit later in 2 Samuel. She hates him. She hates David. And then on top of it all, what do we see happen? The poor husband, who was not probably involved in any of this, married Michael, appears to love her, He walks all the way to this far distance trying to to talk them out of this. Don't take my wife from me. He's weeping 
David's not phased. He doesn't care. Just give me my wife. I need number seven. You know what's happening, and here's the sad thing in all of it. David is becoming the king that God warned the Israelites about. Deuteronomy 17, 17. He, speaking of this king, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and, and gold. And we're going to see, we're going to see David, he, he's becoming that guy. His son is going to take it up a notch with Solomon. But this is a problem. This is David, a man after God's own heart, the polygamist. I mean, this is a mess. It's like, this is the guy, and he's got seven wives now? Do you see the danger of the human heart? That even somebody, and we're going to see David do things that are just going to shock us in 2 Samuel. I mean, this is nothing. The seven wives is nothing compared to what he'll do in a few more chapters. You see the danger of the heart. You see the danger of success in this world and how it can drift us, in the, drift us in the wrong way. Not only is he getting stronger, I would argue he is growing very selfish. I think he shares Joab's self-preservation. So go down to verse 31 with me. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. Then buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice, and he wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a full die? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. And then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me, and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put death, Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servant, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Do you see what David's doing? One of the things he's doing is he is taking no responsibility over anything. He's pointing the finger. Do you know what it means to throw people under the bus? Something happens at work, and all of a sudden one of your bosses, and it's actually not your fault, did something wrong, and immediately they start, well, Johnny in HR and... Bob over in parts, it, they're the ones like, it was, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. And David is saying, it's not my fault. Like, I, I, I didn't want Abner to die. I didn't do anything about it. Here's the deal. Who is, who is the top? Who, where does the buck stop amongst God's people here after God? David, right? Own it, David. Own it. First Samuel 10.1, it says, Has not the Lord anointed you when he was speaking to Saul? But this is kind of a pattern that we're supposed to pick up to be prince over his people. You shall reign over the people and you will save them from the hand of their enemies. The king had two jobs. You rule and reign. You protect the people from the enemies. 
David's job here, he's already been anointed king of Judah. Abner does, or Joab did what he did to Abner. What should David have done? He should have stepped in and dealt with Joab. He's the king. And he's not the king, though. He, he, he paints his picture as a coward. He's like, it was not my fault. He, he shouldn't have did it. He's, I'm nice. They're not. I'm gentle. I mean, he's a people pleaser. Come on, David, have a, have a backbone. Have a heart. Step up and lead God's people. And that's not what we see him doing here. He puts on a show. Listen to what he says about Abner. What does he call him? He's a, he's a great man. Where did we see Abner ever being a great man? And he's a prince? He's saying even the morning and stuff, it seems like a show. He's doing it to look good. So when they try to do, once again, it sees, it's like David trying to make the situation work for his benefit, even though so far he's been so good at not manipulating him becoming king. I don't know if he's getting impatient now. But he's trying to work it in a way that everybody's going to say, you know, in the end of the day, David didn't do anything wrong here. Maybe we should let him become king. He would be a good king. And we're going to see this kind of wishy-washiness take place in 2 Samuel. And he's going to be, he's going to have highs and he's going to have lows. Are you worried about other people's perceptions of you? Are you selfish? Are you worried about you? So I, we talked about obstacle courses in the beginning. One of the, the obstacle course things I, I've really liked is the, I've mentioned about the American Ninja Warrior show. Uh, they have, there's a particular obstacle uh, that they've had duplicates. What's the Sky Zone? Sky Zone has a smaller version of it. It's called the Warped Wall. And what the Warped Wall is, it's, it's, it's literally a Warped Wall. So look over here at this wall. That wall is pretty straight. Well, this wall is kind of a gradual, then really steep. So it's possible if you have the athletic ability to run up and then at the very top is a ledge, you jump up and you try to grab onto it either one hand or two hand. And then from there, you get to pull your whole body up to the top and uh, there's a buzzer to hit. And the warp wall, they typically in the events, they have two of them. The one is 14 and a half feet high. So think about that. The rim right there at the basketball hoop is 10 feet so we're talking, you're going about the top, probably even of the backboard, 14 and a half feet. Who thinks they can do that here in this group? Besides my sons and Alex. Those, and those, to be honest with you, the three people I would assume could do that. 14 and a half feet. So it's impressive, and I've watched it. Some of the people, a lot of the people pick the smaller one because like, it's just not happening. And they go on, and you, you don't necessarily get penalized for not doing the big obstacle. But it's quite quite a feat when the warped wall is overcome, when that giant obstacle is defeated. I think what we've seen in this chapter is God overcoming obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. Warped wall after warped wall after warped wall. He's got civil war going on with his people, conflict galore going amongst uh, all the people. He's got problematic characters. He's got Abner, who's all about Abner. Joab, vengeful, wicked dude. David, starting to become a hot mess. He's strong at times, but he's weak. 
but none of this is an obstacle to our God. Think about that. You know, there is not an obstacle to God ever. It's an opportunity for God. So think about that in your own life right now today. What are the obstacles that you're encountering, that you're seeing, where you're like, there is no way I'm going to be able to overcome this. There's no way that I'm going to be able to make it on the other side of this. Friends, it's not an obstacle to God. It's an opportunity. Romans 8, 28, God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So if you have conflict at work, you have conflict in your marriage, if you have conflict uh, with family, if you have financial difficulties, you have a health crisis you're battling, whatever it is, I, I hope that we see from a passage like this, our God overcomes obstacles. Don't sweat it. He's got this. I think the other thing that this does as we see the fact that he overcomes obstacles is it creates a longing for Jesus. Because we looked at Abner and he's like, mess. Joab, mess. David, mess. And I don't know about you, I see them and I look at myself in the mirror and I say, mess. And I'm like, you know who would really be great at this time? Jesus. And that's what we see, Jesus. He's coming. In spite of Abner, in spite of Joab, in spite of David, he's going to come. He's going to sit on the throne. He already has in that sense. He's conquered death. He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And he is returning one day. And God's plans cannot be thwarted. So no matter what goes on in our country, no matter what goes on with politics, no matter what goes on in your personal lives, God is bigger than the obstacles. Jesus wins in the end. And the bigger the glory for God's overcoming we're going to close with Jesus' words. Jesus, in John 16, I have told you these things so that in you, in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now, and we understand that often when we see even anthills in our life, we see mountains. When we look at any obstacle, any pushback, any resistance, any adversity, we immediately get worried and we panic and we fret and we try to manipulate the situation and we do everything in our power to try to make the outcome desirous uh, to what we desire. And, And Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for our lack of, of trust in you. Forgive us for not seeing, God, that you are the one that overcomes. You overcome obstacles. You overcome sin in the garden. You overcame that, uh, that tomb and the cross. And you will continue to overcome because your will will prevail to the end. Hallelujah. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.